what a day, what a month, what a life, what a week. My name is James Simmons. I use he, him pronouns, and I am the Deputy Press Secretary with Progress Iowa, and I am so honored to be the host of What a Week podcast. Today, we have a very special two-part edition of What a Week. Last episode, we heard from the experts as they led a discussion at the University of Northern Iowa about the significance of Black Lives Matter. This episode, which is part two, we get to dive in further to the discussion about the significance of Black Lives Matter thanks to Dr. Reverend Creighton Smith and Joyce Levingston, who took the time out of their super busy schedules to sit down and speak with me individually. First, we're going to hear from Joyce Levingston, a senior program director for the Young Women's Resource Center in Des Moines. And I'm stealing from the forum poster here for part of her intro, but Joyce sits on the College of Education Advisory Board at the University of Northern Iowa and Upper Iowa University. She is a student voice for minority and non-traditional students. Her latest passion is personal, but she is on a quest to contribute to anti-racism work and the dismantling of systemic and institutionalized racism through her storytelling and personal narratives. She is a graduate research assistant in her ed doctoral program at UNI, an organizer for the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Black Lives Matter movement, and the founder of Cedar Falls Little Free Pantries. Joyce has earned a number of awards for her work in the community as well, including the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier List of 20 Under 40 for her lifelong commitment to activism. So let's go ahead and jump on into our discussion. To kick off our conversation today, I wanted to speak with you about um, Jane Elliott. And that was one of the first things you discussed in your forum, uh, how she walks into auditoriums when she was giving her speech and she asks, if anybody wants to be black, put up your hand. And oftentimes majority of people do not put up their hands because we are aware of the racial disparities and issues in this country. But I just wanted to know if you could go a little bit further into depth with that and explain just more about that. Yeah, so um, that was something that, Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton Smith actually um, wanted to do leading in our presentation. And so um, what it basically shows is that everyone is really aware of what it actually means to be Black. I think reflecting for myself, um, I am a little shocked that, you know, maybe there's no hands raised or, um, because I see it all the time. I'm like, they love, like people love our culture. People love black culture, but like, do you really, really want to be black? Like the question is just absolutely not. Um, and that just lets folks know that, I mean, it lets us know that they're aware of, the disparities that we're talking about and the disproportionalities that we're talking about, although people pretend um, like they're not aware of that. And an example of that is when we say something like um, just, you know, being arrested uh, at higher rates than other other individuals. And uh, people often try to say, well, I remember I was pulled over one time and they searched my ashtray or they pulled us out of the car or, 
um, you know, a black person was mean to me and called me a Karen. And it's like, yeah, but you're not thinking about uh, the disproportionality and the rates that it does happen um, to uh, black people or to um, people of color. So but they really are aware of that. And the fact that people don't raise their hands just lets us know that folks really are aware. Right. And another topic that was discussed in the forum was um, kind of the exclusion of Black people in a lot of these intersectional areas of civil rights, um, how voting rights and women's rights movements started out, but Black women were not part of that. It was for white women. And the queer rights movement in the 60s and 70s uh, was majorly progressive for the LGBTQ community if you were white and not necessarily if you were a person of color. Um, can you talk a little bit more about just the topic of intersectionality and how um, you discussed that people aren't as comfortable with the term black as they are. Like if you say we're, we're to say trans lives matter everyone or like we need to support our kids that that's something people jump behind. But if you're, we need to support our black kids or, or black trans lives matter that people are being turned away for whatever reason. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so in my opinion, it's just the fact that um, uh, I think that white people are just so um, privileged and also so colonized that if they are left out equation or if they cannot identify, then it's kind of like, how dare we um, say that? And so what I mean is like, we could talk about literally, and I, I can just think about when like the summertime, right? Um, when you think about the library and you think about um, the population who might be at the library because the library might be a cooling center and you might have um, folks from, uh, the work release center. So a lot of times these people are released from prison or working from jail sentences and uh, people can even have sympathy and empathy um, for folks who are dealing with uh, charges, serious charges, who are dealing with, um, you know, drug abuse, who struggle with poverty. Uh, you could be talking about LGBTQ, you could be talking about trans life, you could literally be talking about anything that white people can open up their mouths and share their story and uh, because when they do so they control the narrative, and they're used to being able to do that. But when you say black. Um, then people start getting automatically uh, offended or um, you just see that fragility uh, displayed and it's because there's no space there um, for them. And it just, it, I feel like it just drives some people absolutely wild and uh, you just see that. And that's why um, it's often kind of like this war or people want to debate or people kind of want to... Um, oh, what is the word where they, uh, they want to compare and contrast like um, suffering, like they want to compare slavery to the Holocaust, or they want to compare, um, you know, what Blacks go through, uh, or what, what they've had to go through um, to the LGBTQ um, plus community. And um, so, even comparing, you know, races against each other, comparing the American Indians against um, Black individuals and 
uh, it is, it's tough because even when I think and talk about like black and people of color, um, for me, I used to be able to say people of color, but I, I recognize now, like, I really have to keep those separate because it's actually not even the same um, for everyone. Black is definitely its own, um, you know, its own entity because there isn't another uh, race in America that has suffered um, or that is oppressed as uh, Black Americans. Right. And with like white people controlling the narrative around this entire topic. Uh, we see BIPOC, the acronym BIPOC, um, Black Indigenous People of Color that people use a lot. We're just lumping all these individual groups and races and ethnicities who face very different um, kinds of prejudice and different have different issues being lumped into this one general, oh, people of color have this issue and it's everybody, which is not addressing the issues facing the Black community specifically. Um, is this, and because of, is this lumping together, uh, one of the things you discussed in the forum is that critical race theory and the, and the push to, to eliminate the truthful telling of history is being tied to the Black Lives Matter movement, even though this piece of this history has nothing to do necessarily with Black Lives Matter because it's just history that's being taught. Is the control um, that white people have over this narrative and lumping, every, lumping everything in together putting more stigma on top of critical race theory and issues surrounding that? Um, I, for one, did not understand what you just said because it was kind of like all over the place. Is there a way that you could break that question into like yeah. two questions? And I just want to, I just want to state, like, I don't really think that people know what critical race theory is. The first time I even heard of critical race theory, I'll tell you, I'm in my one, two, three, fourth year as a doctorate student. Um, I was probably in my second year getting my master's before I heard of critical race theory. And the, uh, the person I heard of it from, I was looking into special education and I was looking at looking at uh, looking at education through a critical race lens. And I was using Patricia Collins um, in her uh, critical race theory and education, um, which just opened up. Once I saw it, I wasn't able to unsee it. Um, just kind of like W.E.B. Du Bois talks about Black folks uh, having that double consciousness where we're able to see the world through the eyes of how white folks perceive us. And then we're able to see the world through the eyes of a black person. Um, very much the same thing. That lens, that critical race lens for me, <laughs> and Sam knows this, has never been taken off. And that's why um, I'm literally able to apply it in healthcare, in school, um, in the community, in any type of situation, uh, because it's just something that I can't unsee. And it's just in conversations that we have all over. But for me, it's certain tenets of critical race theory that I'm talking about, specifically talking about counter narrative, uh, talking about disrupting hegemonies in certain spaces and places, and especially, um, 
being able to talk about whiteness and really what that is. And uh, even in, like in the Cedar Valley, growing up in Cedar Falls and it being a very white community and people saying, this is a great place to retire. This is a, a great place to raise kids, excuse me. Um, and it's like, well, the reason why I used my voice so much um, to talk about maybe what I went through um, while I spent eight to 10 years on UNI campus or just while I was raising four black kids or while I had black kids in the K through 12 education system was to counter narrative those hegemonies to disrupt the hegemonies that were in place in the community because um, it was a great place to raise kids if you looked a certain way, but it's not a great place to raise kids if you're a black mother and the outdoors is for playing and you have to tell your black children, hey, be quiet while you're outside because I don't want anyone looking over here. You know what I'm saying? Or if you're outside and you see two police cars maybe driving back to back and you know they're going towards the park, but your only son is at that park playing basketball. So you have to jump in your car real quick and just hoop around the block to make sure that he's safe because of the community that you live in, those types of things, you know, um, sharing those types of real experiences will help disrupt the hegemonies that Cedar Falls does present because they do it in so many different ways that I think that um, we overlook it all the time. Uh, for instance, I live in a different community now, but I live in West Des Moines. It's very similar to Cedar Falls. This book came out last night about the community and I looked through it and you see these pictures, these white kids sliding down. I used to look at the same tourist stuff in Cedar Falls and you don't see a black, a black face on here. And it's what it is, is it's persuasive racism. So if my husband or my spouse got a job and I said, oh, let me look at this community for my family and I'm a white woman and I look and I think, oh, well, this is a very white community from what I see, you know, this doesn't, you know, I'm, it's just stuff like that. So it just goes so, um, so deep, but I forgot your question. I'm sorry. No, thank you so much for giving a great answer to a question that was so jumbled and out there. Um, jumping off of what you're saying, uh, you also spoke about the cashier who said your children were black, white children because of, um, and that really just went before you're saying, would you mind just talking about that a little more? Yeah, um, I think that unfortunately society, because, um, it's just actually just from being colonized, right? right. Like I recognized what she was talking about. Um, as so not from being black growing up in Cedar Falls, but my black friends who grew up in Waterloo, um, they may have laughed a little bit harder than me at the situation because perhaps they agreed or would have thought that without saying, but, um, you know, for her to be white, saying that to a black woman, you have the white black kids because her saying that I raised my kids in a white community without diversity. And then I took them to a community 
where there was diversity, she was saying that my kids must be in a culture shock right now. Or that she was saying that the other kids perceived my Black children as white, Mm. be it by their actions, be it by their voice. And it was, I was just shocked because of me as a Black woman, for one, that's offensive. I mean, that's just, you know, that's racist, but also grappling with the fact that, um, you know, because of how society is and because I was whited out, um, that there was truth to what she was saying in a, in a messed up, colonized way. Um, and I know because I have fought through those very stereotypes in both communities from very early age until still now, in my third, you know, in my thirties, I just had someone, um, a couple years ago, you know, me being a grown woman and another grown woman stop me in the middle of my sentence and say, why are you talking like that? And I was around my family members and they were like, trying to defend me in a way they said, Joyce has always talked like that. And she was like, well, she doesn't have to talk like that. And for me, I was so upset because <laughs> for one, it was at my dad's repast dinner, right? My dad had just passed away. I know folks had got to drinking or whatever, but it just, I was a very still woke person mm-hmm. and I knew what she was referring to. Um, and it, But it just being that it was something that was always brought up because of who I was around. And so it makes me think about proximity all the time because, I mean, you see that at both ends, right? Have you ever seen a white person that grew up in a black community or a black neighborhood? Like that is that culture appropriates everything. Like, I mean, I have these conversations with Sam too. Like that just is something that you're just like, oh my goodness. And so due to proximity, due to the fact that I was the only black kid in my class, you know, this is... I, this is the way my voice turned out. And this is, you know, folks always um, offend me, not on purpose, but by saying things like, you sound so articulate when you speak and blah, blah, blah. But however, I've also had to use this in certain ways um, to get what I needed in life too. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, eye-opening um and also it's just a tiny tiny you know as uh offensive as it is it's a tiny bit of privilege that I know that I've had in my life and that my kids might be able to use in their life as well sometime too but I mean in all and in the same breath yeah it's just messed up you know, just the pure racism and stereotyping built within that, whatever that black people need to sound or, or if black people sound a particular way that they have become whitewashed or or whatever with that. And it also just outright ignores the like, Oh, you have black, white children because they grew up in this area. It's a 
also just flat outright ignores the lived experiences that black people have and the prejudice that are faced in this country because, oh, may you pass in a white space? Is that even the term that would be used in that area? Yeah. And also she just sounds ridiculous because it lets me know that you think that all black people have to sound like this or talk like this or grow up in this area in order to be considered black. So it's just like you're lacking like a lot of, um, I don't know, knowledge. Um, Unfortunately, she is not the only one who is, like I said, I think I was able to relate to that comment and that's what makes it even more traumatizing and unsettling. And the fact that I think that even me sharing that, people knew. When I am when I say that, people know what I'm talking about, especially if you're from the Cedar Valley. I uh, And my last question for you today is, what message do you have um, for moving forward as we continue the work of fighting for Black Lives Matter and moving uh, moving forward with the civil rights movement to continue fighting for equity in Iowa and across the country? If you're talking about continue fighting for equity, then I would um, most definitely start concentrating on reparations. Mm. I would let that be the guide i think that when we even talk about earlier um even like you said like the bipoc like you know what i'm saying everyone has got reparations but us everybody has got some type of you can't even group us with like even like just certain populations because every other folk has like benefited from their oppression almost or in some way and i'm not i don't i could be using the wrong term i'm sorry but have gotten some type of reparations for Mm -hmm. their in some way, except us. Um, I mean, not nothing, you know, at all, not even an extra stimulus check. And, you know, I think that um, it's quite ridiculous because people assume the textbook version of what society puts out about Black people, like we're welfare, recipients, baby having, um, you know, loud ghetto fighting, stealing, like all these stereotypes. But really, if you look into the data, um, less than 5% of Black people actually even have welfare. And when they do use welfare, it's less than six months. It's really the white women and the white folks um, using the welfare, but they're benefiting from the system, just like they benefited from affirmative action, just like they benefited from the uh, women's suffrage movement, just like they benefit from literally every system put in place. And that goes back to the critical race theory. Black folks don't get nothing unless it benefits white people. So if we want something, it's going to have to benefit white people in some way. And we can draw those connections literally back in history in every single thing. I think Patricia Collins used an example of, um, I think it was the state of like Arizona. Uh, They weren't going to honor Martin Luther King's birthday as a holiday. And so, uh, NBA, NFL said, we not playing no major games there. Um, uh, that state recognized the money and the economic loss 
um, that they would have due to not having any of the playoffs or any of the games there. And they said, okay, we'll honor it. So it's like, okay, so black people, they got the holiday, but white people, they got the economic, like there's so many incidences and rather it be big or small. If we literally just talked about these types of conversations all day, we could give so many examples. Like I said, affirmative action. I think it's like 73% of white pe- uh, white women, like they actually, and they, that money goes back into white households with white mm-hmm. husbands. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's not even for us, but society will blame us or just say like, this stuff is for us, welfare and all types of stuff. And it's like, it wasn't none of that set up for us. Like right. we benefit not even a fourth, you know? So, but right. I can all day. I right. hope I um, over talk, but yeah, reparations. That's the answer to the last question. Yeah. And like you said, there's so many examples for things we could pull forward, but another, another great, I mean, like you pointed out there, affirmative action is primarily benefiting white women, which in like welfare, the narrative is that there are more black people in welfare than white people, which we just, it's not true. We know it's not true, but white people are controlling that narrative and pushing that out, which continues the persuasive racism continues this stigma throughout our entire culture and country, because that's, because it just assumes that that's the fact and no one's checking it because we hear it every day. Yes. And funny side note, there's this story on Netflix and it's called like, I forgot what it's called, but it's like this white mom and she has like a vacuum and a baby. And, um, oh, what is it called? I forgot because I won't even watch it, but they're like, oh my gosh, did you see like, it's called the nanny or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was oh yeah, I saw like the first couple episodes. They're like, isn't that so sad? And I was like, oh no, I liked it, but I'm not going to finish watching it because in my mind, I can already see how it ends. In my mind, I'm already predicting it ends because of some type of white privilege, right? Right. But like, I love how it portrayed a white woman being on welfare and struggling because I was like, those are the ones who are really on welfare. Like every black woman I know, rather they're degreed up from the feet up like me or not, Like they work two jobs, like they'll be out here doing hair, selling plates, like black women that I know, like really will get it by any means possible. And, and I mean, when I say that, I mean, in the legalist way possible, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? So I, black women I know are like hard workers. And here's the thing, like even me having to say that it puts so much pressure on our shoulders. It puts so much weight on us that we don't even deserve, but that's, all I know of black women. I don't know any black woman that's sitting here milking the system or, or want welfare dollars or any of that, because as we know, like all, like none of that is even worth it. It all comes with so much, um, you know, stigmas and torment and you ask these people for help and they act like they're giving it to you out of your pocket and they shame you for it. And I mean, it's not, it's not even worth it to go seeking for help. You may as well just work and get it on your own. And that is 99.9% of the black women I know. Right. Why seek help if you're just going to be re-traumatized in the process? Yeah, exactly. And also too, we wasn't raised like that. Right. Our, our mamas and grandmas, like they didn't raise us (laughs) like that. So, I mean, I, I just, 
I just can't, you know, with society. And I just, I hope that we're able to continue educating each other. So we're able to even like decolonize ourselves and decolonize our mind because it takes a lot of work and you need some good friends and some good circles, some good allies and some good therapists to handle it all. Right. Well, thank you so much, Joyce, for joining me and having this conversation. I am so excited for our listeners to be able to hear this and um, hear more from your perspective. It's so important uh, for everybody to get out there and to hear from leaders, but also to do the education yourself. You need to go out of your go out and find books, go out and find, um, there are websites, there are so many things that you can educate yourself on. It's an ongoing process to decolonize your brain, to unlearn these things that especially coming from a perspective of a white person who was raised in Iowa. I, I was raised knowing that the state was built around me. Um, and so it's a process that all of us have to work on together. So I just want to thank you so much, Joyce, for speaking with me and sharing today. No problem. And our second and final interview for this special edition of What a Week, the Significance of Black Lives Matter is Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith. Again, taking from the UNI Forum poster, Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith is an adjunct professor in social work and women's and gender studies at the University of Northern Iowa, as well as a pastor at the Faith Temple American Baptist Church. She received her Doctorate of Education in December 2019 from the University of Northern Iowa with her dissertation, Examining Linkages Between Institutional Racism, Internalized Racial Oppression, and Self-Efficacy in African-American Youth. She is a lifelong social justice advocate and activist and has been an anti-racism trainer for correctional and human services workers and professionals, as well as a diversity and inclusion facilitator. Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith is an active member of the NAACP since 2012 and an executive committee member of, for the Black Hawk chapter of the NAACP since 2015. She is also the mother of State Representative Ross Smith, who was the first president of the Iowa Legislative Black Caucus. And I am so excited for you all to finally hear our conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Belinda, Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith. And I would like to kick off our conversation today um, by talking about your research um, into uh, Black trauma for students um, that are on predominantly white campuses. Um, mm. Before we dive into that, do you mind just giving a brief overview of that research? Yeah, no. Um, yes, I'm really excited to be here as well. So the research uh, stemmed from, from my personal experiences uh, navigating white spaces in um, academia uh, as a uh, undergraduate student and then as a master's level student in Kansas City and then of course back here at uh, University of Northern Iowa. And for me, um, it, was, it was challenging. Uh, there were there was there were times when I just didn't think I could continue um, to to just you know push against the goal so to speak as challenges never seem to cease uh, and then um, I was really fortunate to um, interface with a number of students uh, in different classes who were saying some things that were very similar to what I had experienced. And that dovetailed really well with where I was thinking I wanted to go uh, with my research. 
um, I was really fortunate to have some mentors like uh, Dr. Uh, Christopher Edgington and Dr. Sam uh, Lankford, who told me that I could make my uh, program what I wanted to be. Because I was in the Leisure Youth and Human Services Department in the Department of Ed, and I was thinking, well, how can I talk about racism, you know, and, and leisure and, you know, those kinds of things. So uh, I began to kind of package or design um, the program and to look specifically at uh, racism um, encountered by students on predominantly white spaces, um, people trying to experience, have leisure experiences. So that somewhat kind of led me to that, uh, to where I ended up landing. Uh, and then what kinds of uh, degree of efficacy is needed in, in order to survive. I mean, in order to be successful in spite of the challenges. And so uh, that's how I found myself looking at um, African-American students who were, uh, who were, member, who, uh, were students at predominantly white institutions and whether or not those experiences with racism impacted their efficacy, their self-efficacy and whether or not they internalized any of the trauma or the harm. Um, that was caused them as a result of that, those experiences. And I'm assuming with the research that you did find that it did internalize and it did cause harm to the educational experience. Well, what I found, because I, I did too, it was a multi-pronged kind of approach. I did um, uh, qualitative research, you know, where I had focus groups uh, at mid Midwestern college campuses. And then I did a quantitative piece and the quantitative piece dealt with uh, experiences of discrimination. So I used a, um, a tool uh, that had been validated and proven reliable in assessing the degree of experiences that students had um, or that people had with uh, law enforcement, when uh, landlords, uh, just different areas of one's life as you try to navigate society. And so that particular instrument uh, was helpful in that I was able to identify some areas where the students um, did uh, verbalize experiencing uh, discrimination. However, it did not look at some of the other kinds of uh, discrimination that students face. For example, the microaggressions um, that come from daily day, you know, day on day in and day out kind of. Uh, many assaults right on the psyche with questions or behavior and et cetera. My research, the, the quantitative portion dealt with experiences of discrimination. So that was one of the limitations, delimitations of the studies that I, I, I needed to probably expand uh, the quantitative piece as well. And that's what I would like to do in the future. The qualitative piece, however, was able to capture uh, some of those uh, incidences with microaggressions, uh, things that happen in the classroom, uh, things that happen on, in, in social spaces uh, with students over here or uh, how students, you know, how they experience social interactions with, you know, with white students in predominantly white spaces, uh, their encounters with uh, faculty in different, you know, college campuses. Uh, as it relates to microaggressions and micro uh, macro assaults, even in some situations. 
And so that was that piece, the qualitative piece was very, very helpful because it provided the undergirding or that I needed, you know, to support um, my, uh, my hypothesis and, and the research. And then the other uh, quantitative piece was looking at self-efficacy. And in looking at self-efficacy, what I, I learned is that while students internalized uh, the microaggressions and assaults, they also buffered for it. Um, they found ways to overcome it. And, and some of the ways that they overcame it was in their, uh, their racial identity, their, their black pride, um, in their religious, their faith traditions, you know, their beliefs. And so they were able to counteract for uh, those experiences so that the more um, engagement they have with other kinds of support systems, uh, the less impact internalized racism had on their, on their well-being. Wow, that's really interesting. And for our listeners that will be hearing this, um, there is not a single uh, higher place of higher education in the state of Iowa that has a minority dominant campus. It's everywhere is white dominant. Um, numbers, for example, University of Iowa, the class fall class of 2020, uh, 2020 had a 21% of minority students. And the most recent data that I can find says that only 23% of uh, tenured professors at that campus are minority um, professors. And that's not, and that's, that's minority in general. That doesn't break it down by black, by Latino, by that's Asian. Right as well. And so that's an incredibly small number. And I wanted to jump back to what you said about microaggressions. Um, in your forum uh, with Joyce, you uh, discussed um, how in the play that was at University, University of Northern Iowa's campus, uh, the, the mother was putting khakis and certain clothing at the front uh, and how you did that yourself. Um, and these microaggressions bleed into not just what people are doing to minority students and black students specifically, but it's something that impacts every day. Would you mind talking a little bit more about that? Sure, sure. Um, I was sharing that um, in the Michael Brown play um, that was uh, performed on, on the campus of UNI. The, one of the impactful scenes was uh, Michael Brown's mother arranging his closet so that he would wear uh, clothes that would, be, would appear to be less threatening uh, if he were encountered by uh, someone that was white or a law enforcement officer. And subconsciously, I, would, I had done the same thing with all of my sons. And it, I, it brought me to tears because I hadn't thought about it. It was just something that I did. And how we are always trying to protect our children and it's our sons in particular from harm in a society that is very dangerous um, to be black and to be male or to be um, black and to be female and to be um, maybe outspoken, you know, and of larger stature. So definitely the, what we, what I internalized was without even realizing it is the need to uh, protect and provide some sort of protections for my children who were navigating this society. Other things that I did that I know other parents do is give specific instructions when you're driving while black, <laughs> you know, which is every day of your life. You, this, this is what you do. You know, you don't don't have your music playing loud, you know, loudly. Make sure that if you're stopped by law enforcement, that you put your hands, both hands, you know, so that they can see them and that you respond, you know, as 
you know, indignant as you may be, you know, as angry as you may be, that you respond in a calm, calm voice so that, you know, you're not perceived to be a threat because I want you to come home alive. To have those talks with our sons and even our daughters, because my daughter was one who's very vocal. And so the, she's sitting in the car with one of her brothers and, and as she has done in the past and was pulled over by law enforcement as they happened in the past, she becomes very verbal, you know, and very vocal about what has happened and, and why are you stopping us and why are you picking on us and those kinds of things. So I have to also say, and you have to just, I know it's, it's wrong, we'll file a complaint later, but follow these this procedure. So it's a, it's a it's a conversation that we really never think about. It's just a way of being and a way of, of living and surviving in a society that can be somewhat hostile at times uh, because of the color of our skin, the degree of melanin that we have in our skin. What does that do to students? Um, you said that students who have access to these other support systems, or other ways to identify with their cultural or racial heritage, that they are able to fight back against some of those but what is the, what are these constant messages or just, as you just said, it's not something you always think about. It's just something you have to do to survive as black in the United States. What does yeah. this do to these students? Well, I'm, from the qualitative portion of the research, students would make comments like, I'm just so tired. <laughs> I'm exhausted, you know, you know, or it's not fair. I just want to give up. Um, uh, because of the feeling overwhelmed and having to do this all the time, or I can't believe I'm, I'm, we're still here. I'm, st I'm still having to do this when this is the kind of things, these are the kind of things that happened to my parents, you know, years ago. Uh, one of my students, uh, one of the students in the interview talked about how they just, just, just stopped going to class. It was just too much. It was too much. So they stopped going to class. Um, it wasn't until the teacher reached out and said, hey, you've been gone for two weeks. What's going on? Um, that she was able to get out of bed and to move forward. So the, the, so the trauma is real. The psychological impact is real. Uh, quantitatively, that it didn't pick up as well as I hoped it would. But qualitatively, it was evident. It was very evident, a psychological uh, harm that is being done to um, you know, to students navigating these white spaces. So we are really fortunate to have, you know, Black Student Union and the, you know, student, other student orgs, you know, the Latinx student org and, um, you know, to support these students as they're going through these, these um, traumatic experiences. But it weighs on them uh, psychologically. Um, also not feeling as though they have someone that they could talk to, a counselor that would understand you know, something that they may not even be able to put to words. Yeah. You know, it's just, I feel really, I feel really visible, visible and vulnerable today. You know, well, what the heck does that mean? They, you know, and so um, I, one of the things I suggested is for campuses to make sure that they're providing the, they, they have in place, not only counselors that can identify with the students um, and, and, and peer groups of, uh, that have some sort of training to help students, you know, walk through the process of the emotional pain that they're encountering, uh, and but places where they can call, where they can go when they've just had enough, when they've had enough of having their hair touched, you know, when they've had enough of, of being pointed out, you know, as okay, you people, you know, or when they've had enough of having to speak for the entire race, or when they've had enough 
of being followed around in the store or not being permitted to get hair products when everyone else's hair products are on the shelf without lock and key. Um, you know, we're not having hair products and face products available, you know, so all of those, um, those elements that why bother me not seem significant to, to, to the dominant group, uh, they are very impactful when it comes to uh, wh whether or not the space is perceived as being hospitable, you know, inviting, safe and inclusive. Right. Um, and I want to jump off of just like a great point. You said there's a great transition to what I was going to ask you next, too. Um, you and Joyce both talked about in uh, the forum how it is not the exception, but it is sadly the rule where counselors and these teachers are pulling black students aside or being or encouraging them. Oh, I think your quote was, oh, don't be a lawyer. Go be a secretary. And yes. Joyce is a science teacher pulling her out, saying you're ruining these opportunities mm -hmm. for other students. Do we have numbers about the percentage of black counselors on college campuses or like what work is being done too to make sure that we're getting more diverse advisors and counselors to actually identify with students? Yeah, uh, that's part of what my, my study talks about how to make the campus more uh, inclusive and, and more uh, engaging and supportive of students of color. That's one of the recommendations that I made that we provide more counselors. No, we don't have. Um, but we need to, uh, that's, that, that's where we need to uh, shore up the work. Uh, I'm not sure about other campuses, but I think it would be a, really be a good uh, research project to find out who has what. Um, I know that funding is always an issue, but we have to do something. When we have students of color who, BIPOC students who go to the health centers, you know, student health centers across the Midwest, and they're treated differently, that's problematic. Uh, and that's for, that's for their health concerns, you know, health, health issues. So if they're having those kind of encounters when, it, when they present with a, with a virus or with, you know, with, a, with strep throat or with a sprain or, and they feel as though they're been, being treated differently and unfairly and not being taken seriously and that their, their um, issues are being minimized or not fully addressed, I can only imagine what it must be like when they try to present present with with mind health issues, you know, or other kinds of emotional stresses and concerns. So definitely, the, the work is has yet to be done. We have not even tapped the you know the surface of what needs to be done in that arena. That is really. <laughs> discouraging, but also uh, moving to hear, moving in this, um, initiating. I don't know if that's, I'm not finding the right word I want to say, but motivating. There, that's mm -hmm. the word. There's so much work that we still need to do in this area. Yes. Um, and I want to kind of switch away from the campus for just a second and talk okay. a little bit more about um, health disparities uh, for, for a little bit. Um, we know that it's we know and the pandemic has shown even more so that uh, BIPOC and specifically black people are being disproportionately affected by COVID, disproportionately mm -hmm. affected by um, even before this um, heart conditions, lung conditions, yes. health and, and uh, issues in general. Um, and I wanted to 
kind of, I know this is all, this is a big topic to bring into one subject, uh, but talk about the new bill that just passed um, from the Iowa House about the doulas and midwife um, licensures in the state, uh, because black, black women have a higher rate of infant mortality, much, much higher than white women in the state of Iowa. Um, and this bill is, uh, was championed by your very son, uh, Representative Rob, um, and is hopefully going to make a big impact for the state. Mm-hmm. That definitely is our hope, um, because what we're finding is um, when, for example, in maternity health, when women present um, with pregnancy complications or, or challenges, um, those, those issues, those symptoms um, are not taken very seriously. I have, for example, in, in particular, a member of my church who um, presented with some uh, preeclampsia um, and was threatening that during the latter part of her pregnancy and uh, went to the doctor many times. In fact, um, the nurse that was coming into the home uh, kept sending her back to the hospital for care because of the severity of her condition. However, the the gynecologist, the uh, obstetrician did not take it seriously. And as a result, they they had a baby that was brain damaged um, during birth because of the trauma that the baby experienced when she was born. Um, So having medulas that can be there who empathize with the mother, who who also also are trained to know the symptoms, the signs and symptoms, and then to help advocate is very important. It's very important to trying to um, mitigate for the harm that is being done to so many um, BIPOC people in this, in this world and in this state in particular. Right. Mm-hmm. And I have one last question for you. This is the golden tech question that everyone <laughs> asks at every forum. Um, but I wanted to dive into you. Uh, you spoke about, um, you and Joy spoke about in the forum that if you talk, if you say black lives matter, that that can be, that can, that turns some people away because of the word black. If you said mm-hmm. queer lives matter, you said women's lives matter, women's rights, women's issues, queer issues, people have a tendency to identify with that more, but that a lot of, especially white people have a very hard time in any way identifying with the word black. And thus it seems like, an, it seems like a their issue and not a everybody issue. Yes. Um, so how do we motivate white white people how do we motivate white students and we know that we know that there are people of color already out there doing the work um and we need allies fighting alongside uh the black lives excuse me black lives matter movement right now um which has been going on for a very long time uh movement but is very heavily being led by young people but also young people are the least are the most inactive group of voters and in society so i know that was a lot at once and that question but what do we do? Yeah, so so you really in, in in sharing the question, there was some some gems of how to get people more engaged. Uh, for example, Black Lives Matter has uh, motivated folks to vote, <laughs> and when young people galvanized their voices, they were able to to uh, get one prosecutor out on the West Coast and bring in another prosecutor who could bring about change in their, in their city. So there's a lot that can happen with the engagement of young people in the movement and moving them forward. 
Also, I think that the people have become, especially young people, become disillusioned with politics and the way in which politics seem to have done us great harm. Until we have something better, we still need young people to get engaged in this, in the politics to bring about a change. So let's get some young people in as state representatives. Let's get some young people in the Senate. Let's get some young people who, who know where we're hit, where we need to head uh, in, in, in federal government and in, in positions of power. Let's move, let's move and galvanize and get folks in those positions. The one of the blessings that I have is serving young people on UNI's campus. And I can say that every year that I've taught, there have, there have been students who have seemed to rise to the surface and say, would say no more, what can I do? And they have, they have come together. I mean, there were a number of them at our, our uh, Black Lives Matter protests that passed two summers ago. Uh, and I could see the fruits of my labor, but these young people have been in the vanguard since them working. Uh, and saying we've got to talk about the problem because for some reason, when a person mentions a black person or anybody mentions the word black, people become afraid because of the history associated with, but we, we got to talk about it. It isn't until like the Senkufu bird says, we can't know where we're going until we look at where we've been and we can't really make a change in the future unless we can ensure that we're not doing the same thing in a different way. And that's what we've done in, in our country. We've done the same thing in a, just in a different way. While slavery was ended, we put some other stuff in place to ensure that more black people are incarcerated now than were, that, than were enslaved, right? In the, at the pinnacle of, of enslavement. So we have to be able to recognize those things and challenge those policies, practices, values that will perpetuate the inequities that we see each and every, every day of our lives coming up in the statistics. And sometimes people will say, oh, you want us to legislate opportunities. No, 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 no. Oh, you want us to legislate, legislate outcomes. Well, here's what we want you to do. <laughs> we want the, the, that every policy, every uh, practice, every value, every, every, every institution, would be one that's held accountable to racial equity. And if, if this particular practice is going to disproportionately, adversely impact people of color, then don't do it. <laughs> Go back to the drawing board and come up with something different. Because when you control for everything, when you control for socioeconomic class, when you control for where a person lives, educational level, when you can control for all of those variables, Black folks still die at an earlier age. More Black people still die from heart disease and cancer and kidney disease and high blood pressure, right? More babies are born harmed or are not able to be born as a result of the treatment that they're receiving or lack of treatment they're receiving from their practitioners. So we've got to fix it. Because we can't say it's education. We can't say it's wealth. We can't say because even when you control for all of those things, there is still an overwhelmingly number, disproportionate number of Black people that are suffering uh, uh, disparate outcomes. Right. All lives cannot matter until Black lives matter in this, exactly. this country, in this world. And the minority impact statement that Iowa was the leader on and it was the first state in the nation to have is meant to 
do what you said to point out where these disparities are coming from and not meant to just be like, oh, this is going to be an issue, but we know it's going to happen. It's you should be taking this. We get these reports and then going back to the drawing board and yes. rewriting legislation. We have yes. some of the greatest minds in our state sitting at the state legislature. They can mm-hmm. go back to the drawing board and not hurt an entire group of people. That's but, right. That's right. If they believe that that group of people is worth not hurting. And, and I think that's part, part of what sometimes you have folks that might think that, well, that's just their plight. Um, that's just the way things are going to be. It's always going to be that way. We've got to take care of what we, what we know, right? What our uh, constituents want us to do. And they're not considering all of the constituents in the state. No, they're not. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Reverend, uh, excuse me, Dr. Reverend Belinda Creighton-Smith. I really appreciate your insight. There's so much more that we could dive into and speak for hours on, uh, but I appreciate you speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful.